Christ. And again, thanks so much for being a part of this service tonight. I hope you have a Bible. If you do, I would love for you to turn to Romans chapter 8 as we continue um, our journey through the book of Romans that we've been taking during this time um, of uh, social distancing, this time where church has been a lot different. God's Word has been the same, better than ever, actually. Um, In Romans chapter 8, it's going to be our text tonight. And if you were to ask me, if you were to ask me, is there one chapter, could it be that there's one chapter in the Bible that, w- that could carry the rest if it needed to? Um, is there one chapter that if you only could refer and only could give one chapter to somebody that needed to hear the, the gospel and had never heard it before, is there one chapter that could carry the rest? Is there one chapter that encapsulates the rest if it were the only one available? And I don't think that, uh, that, that it'd be controversial to say that Romans 8 is that chapter, uh, not just for the one verse that we often know it for, but the entire chapter is overflowing with grace and truth. There is enough in this one chapter alone that could lead someone to God and show them that if they want to be a child of God, there is only one way. That they can be in God's family, they can be a follower of Christ. This one chapter does that. It directs us to Jesus and leads us into eternity. That is how monumental this chapter is. Of course, all of Romans is pretty important, as we've learned and as most of you know. But again, this chapter in and of itself is tremendous as a window into and a summation of the Christian faith. The rest of the Bible is no less inspired, of course, but there's something special about Romans 8. And I'm sure you may wonder, did Paul know that he was writing such an important chapter? Did he know that he was writing such a monumental, often uh, quoted and referenced chapter in the future? Well, Romans, of course, has been building up to this. Paul knew that, at least, right? Romans 1 through 3 diagnoses creation um, from Gentile to Jew as being under sin, being in bondage to sin. Romans 4 and 5 outlines that redemption is found by faith in God's plan. Romans 6 and 7 talks about how redemption can change our lives and how we have been given a new identity and a new belonging in Christ alone. And chapter 8 is a victory lap of sorts, celebrating what it means to be a Christian, celebrating what it means to be in Christ and giving salvation from sin, but also in how it transforms us by God's grace. And it looks forward. It looks forward. It looks upward to what being a Christian means beyond this life. It takes a spiritual look at what being in Christ promises us against remaining in a fallen world. Romans 8 addresses that while we are saved, uh, the rest of the world is still in sin. So there's a continued tension. There's a continued friction that we must deal with, and yet we can still find hope in spite of. So we're going to cover all of that in more of an overview of the chapter tonight. I would encourage you to read this verse by verse. There are, um, there are 39 verses. There could be 30 sermons from this chapter alone or more. Uh, but I want to kind of take you as, uh, through an overview of this chapter. Um, we're going to cover all of that we have previewed already in this spectacular text. Uh, Romans 8 begins with a recap of sorts of what it means to be saved um, and summarizes what the first seven chapters have taught us. So I want to read verses 1 through 11, um, and uh, then we'll kind of unpack what God is saying to us in these first opening verses, and then we'll see what else God has in store for us. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son and the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you you. So much uh, good news in these 11 verses alone. But I want to deal with verse 1 first off. Um, If you haven't read anything prior to this, here's what we find out from this first verse. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's what we find as a kind of a summation, but also a confirmation. Apart from Christ, there is condemnation. Apart from Christ, we are condemned in our sin. And the only way to be saved, the only way to have salvation, to have restoration, is in Christ. This is conclusive regarding the exclusivity of salvation. It is in Christ alone. There is victory over sin and death in Christ alone. We also, though, find a depiction of what it means to be in Christ. We are condemned in our flesh. Now we are saved because God's Spirit is in us. Sin in us condemns us, but God's Spirit in us saves us. So if you are in Christ, your walk is different. That's what verse 1 details, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because those who are in Christ walk not according to the flesh, but according to and by the Spirit. Now, this idea of walking in Christ, uh, it, it speaks of more than just taking one step, right? It speaks of our lifestyle. The Greek word there, peripateo, speaks of how you conduct your life, how you walk about, how you live out your life. So if we're in Christ, our lives are different. Our lives are changed. Our lives are transformed. We walk differently. We act differently. But to what end? We walk and we act the way God's Spirit leads us to. That's the distinction. But what is the Christian distinction, you may wonder? What is the details behind it? Well, we are free from the power of our flesh. Verse number two, for the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. The Christian distinction is that we are free to live a new way, that we are freed from an old way, that sin and death has no power over our flesh anymore. Our flesh has been given life by God's Spirit. Now, I want to talk about this concept of flesh and spirit. 
The word flesh, in the Greek it's the word sarx. Uh, the word, this word can refer to earth, matter, material, anything physical. Uh, that in and of itself is not bad. Uh, we know from the scripture that those things are not bad, but rather God declared them good. He created them, right? So flesh in and of itself isn't bad, but the way we should interpret the idea of flesh versus spirit is like this. Flesh speaks of that which leads to death. That when Paul talks about living according to the flesh versus living according to the Spirit, living according to the flesh will lead to death. Now, I'll talk about that in a minute. Versus living according to the Spirit leads to life. Now, why does the flesh lead to death? It's because our flesh is bad in that it is faulty, it is frail, it is fragile, it is fallen. Our flesh is fading away. Because our flesh is under the curse of this world, under the curse of sin. Our flesh is fading. Our flesh literally is passing away because all of us are under the curse of sin and death. So when we live by the flesh, we're living in a way that lives for the moment, lives in the moment, not considering how fleeting that way actually is. So we see that we do this all the time, don't we? That we live according to the flesh and that we are only focused on the here and now because we're convinced there's nothing better, there's nothing beyond this, there's no reason to be concerned about eternity because it's just here and now and then we're gone. Verse 2 tells us, the Spirit shows us that there is a way to live that doesn't have to resort to taking sin's bait. So the enemy comes to us in our flesh and says, this is the way to find pleasure. This is the way to find satisfaction. Here are these counterfeit ways to find joy and peace and purpose. And in our flesh, in our flesh, we follow sin because we've set on the temporary and know that there's no future for us. We realize we are passing away and it's to live for the now, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we all die. That is the mentality of our flesh. We know there's an expiration date. We know there are temporary days ahead of us. We know there's an end coming. And sin comes to our flesh in its frail and fragile and weak mind and says, this is the only way for you to enjoy life. But in the Spirit, our standards have been raised because we know that we are eternal creatures and what we do now has an impact and what is next and that we are not living today just for tomorrow and then we're going to die we are going to live forever so what we do now will have an impact on forever so we know there's a better way to live than for the here and now there's a better way to live than taking sin's bait and just living for the moment because we realize there's something bigger than the moment in the spirit we've raised our standards we don't have to settle for sin because we are set on heaven. Now Paul refers to the law of sin because our flesh being temporary thinks there's no better way to live, no other way to find peace and find purpose. Think of the examples in the Bible of the men of God who found themselves in the wilderness. The story of Moses, the story of David, the story of Elijah. As they were taken, as the pleasures of this world were taken from them, they found a way to find satisfaction in and of that moment of isolation, in and of that time of having nothing of this world, they still found a way to find peace and find joy and find purpose because they relied on God, because God was all they had. That tells us there's a better way than just living according to the flesh, living according to sin. 
Think about Jesus in the wilderness. He sort of embodies it all in a more perfect and powerful way. He was desperate for comfort 40 days of no water, no nothing to drink, nothing to eat. He was being tempted, harassed by the enemy with the pleasures of this world, with the treasures of this world. Yet Jesus resists and rebukes the enemy because Jesus knew there was more pleasure and more treasure to be found in God while in exile than to be found without God in luxury. That there was more pleasure and more peace, more treasure and more satisfaction to be found with God in exile than to be found without God in a palace in luxury and lavishness. Jesus rebuked the enemy when he tempted him to turn stones into bread. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Do you hear the point? Do you see the point in that statement, in that way that Jesus resisted the enemy? Our flesh falls for sin's traps because we think unless we have what it offers, we won't ever be full and we won't ever be satisfied. But the Spirit of God says, come to the well and drink from living water and you'll never be thirsty again. Now I've learned in this time of isolation and distancing that I don't need half the things I thought I needed to be happy. In a dry and weary land, my soul thirsts and my heart faints for something bigger and something better. For God and God alone. Your heart wants more than this world can offer. Your flesh may be tempted to follow sin, but God's Spirit is calling you to Jesus. Now, the question, of course, is can we trust Jesus? Can we trust and rely on Jesus? Verse 3 and 4 makes it very clear that we can what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now here's why we can trust Jesus according to Paul. Whether we realize it or not, our inability to, pl- to be pleased, our inability to find rest in this world is a byproduct of our disconnect, the world's disconnect from God. That's absolutely true. In Deuteronomy 28, there's a, there's a passage at the end where God says about Israel after they, had, after they in the future would, de- would depart from Him and turn away from Him, that God would make them realize that they had no ability to be satisfied or pleased by the things of this world, that they would not be satisfied with anything no matter what they expected. God gave the law to show the standard that we fall short of. God gave His law to emphasize our inability to please Him in and of ourselves on our own. If you've ever opened up the Bible and you've read a couple of chapters, you read a couple of verses, and you thought, wow, I can't. You thought, I can't please God. I can't live like God wants me to live. I can't do what these Christians say I should do. Listen, that's normal. That's the intent. God's law was given to show that there's a standard that we fall short of and that we cannot please Him in and of ourselves. Now you think, well, that's not good news. There's more. So we are fixed between two straits. God's law condemns us. And then sin traps and condemns us by taking us down an inferior alternative way. So what are we to do? It sounds like we are in dire straits apart from salvation. Unless someone rescues us, we are stuck in this place of not being able to please God. And the only way we have available is a way that's going to make us even farther away from God. So what are we to do? Oh, wretched 
men and women that we are, right? Who can save us from this bondage? Jesus Christ can save us from this bondage. If you feel like, hey, I don't know if there's a way out of this, that's the point. Jesus comes and shows you he is the way out. He was 100% obedient to God. He fulfilled the law. He met God's standards. He measured up for you. You can't, you couldn't, you won't be able to on your own. Jesus did it for you. He did it for us. And all the while, he resisted sin and was punished on the cross for all those who did not resist sin. You, me, everybody. So not only was he obedient to God, not only did he fulfill the law, but he also suffered under the weight and penalty of sin for you and I. So Jesus' life and work makes it clear to us that we cannot please God, but there is no peace apart from God. And Jesus comes to us with good news. I please God for you. I've made peace with God for you. I've pleased God for you. I've made peace with God for you. Trust in me as your Savior. I will rescue your soul. I will save your life. Woo, right? This first part of the chapter is about how we can live the way God wants us to live in a way that reflects victory over sin and shame. We can have victorious living. We can live victoriously in Christ alone. Listen to how Paul contrasts the two ways we can live, verse 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. He says to be carnally minded is death, but spiritually minded is life and peace. He says the carnal mind is an enmity against God, not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So it makes it very clear that we cannot ever find peace and satisfaction apart from Jesus, apart from God. In verse 9 says that we can receive God's Spirit. We can be changed by God's Spirit. You are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Here's something very important. Every believer has the Spirit of God. There, everybody who's a, a Christian has been baptized in the Spirit of God. It's a matter of will we lean into Him and will we defer our decisions to Him. But there is no second work. There's no, well, I don't have the Spirit, but I've been saved, but you've been... No, if you are a Christian, you have been filled with the Spirit of God. It's up to you to lean into Him and let Him rule over your life. But it's not a question of if you have Him, because if you are in Christ, you have his spirit. Verse 9 promises you that. So it's just about leaning in and living up and letting him live through you. You may ask though, how do we know what he would have us to do? How do we live up to this new way? Jesus said in John 15, abide in me and I'll abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit apart from the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But in me and with me, you can do anything in terms of living a life that glorifies God. Verse 10 says, if we're in Christ, his spirit is in us. We are being filled with more life. Verse 11 says, this life is the same life that raised Jesus from the dead. So we have no excuses. 
We should spend less time worrying over how much of our flesh we can continue to entertain and focus more on how much of the Spirit we can experience, right? We should spend less time worrying over how much of our flesh we can continue to entertain and keep around and spend all of our time focusing on how much of the Spirit we can experience. That's the difference. That's the problem with most Christians. That it's not that we don't have the Spirit of God. It's that we're still entertaining our flesh. We're still considering that there may be a better option by living according to this world, living according to our sinful nature. But there is none, right? There is no option to, to, to consider. If we focus on how much of the Spirit we can experience, we would live so much better and so much differently. Too many Christians wonder, is this okay for me to do? Can I get by with this? Instead of asking, what would God have me to do? How can I experience more of Him? How can I live victoriously in Him and through Him? Listen to verse 12 as it details our new life in Christ. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many are as led by the Spirit of God, these are sons or children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit of Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, this new identity that we have this new ability that we have. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. So verse 12 through 17 speaks of this newfound path we can walk. It speaks of how we are debtors in a sense. We are dependent on Him. We are now children of God, adopted into God's family. We want to live up to this new identity. But notice verse 17 teases out this new identity will involve a struggle. Remember, this chapter is celebrating our salvation, but it's also declaring that the enemy has been defeated, that sin has been taken out of us, that God's Spirit has been put into us. The enemy's control over us has been loosened. We are now God's property. To accomplish this, Jesus suffered, bled, and died. And because we've received this, and because we remain in a fallen world, we too are going to suffer. We're going to face trials and tribulations. Because the world rejected him, the world will reject us. But again, this is a message of hope. Our salvation is not in vain. It is not disingenuous. Remember, we've been taken out of sin, put into Christ, but our world remains fallen. But what God has begun in us, he is going to spend and spend time and, and, and spread out through all of creation. He's working to redeem the world one person at a time before he restores all things. So in the meanwhile, the enemy fights to hold on to what he remains in possession of. We must endure, we must press on as committed as ever to show what God can do. If he can redeem us from a dead end, he can redeem anything. If he can fill us with the Spirit, he can send his Spirit anywhere. If he can give us a new identity, he can give creation a new identity. So yes, Christians, we will face hardships in this world, but we can face them victoriously. You hear that? When we're saved, we are placed in Christ, so even as we face trouble, we are still in Christ. So the last part of this chapter is about victoriously suffering. How can we suffer victoriously? Just as we can live victoriously, we can suffer 
victoriously. Look at verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it to hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption unto the glorious liberty of God's children. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. For we are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So we suffer with certainty that God is going to break redemption to the world and that He's working that redemption out through us and previewing that redemption out through us. We are the first fruits of His redemption, promise, and power. Do you hear that? You are an example and a preview to the world of what God can do and what God is going to do. You are a first fruit of God's redemption, promise, and His redemption power. It is necessary that we suffer that we face hardships, if only to demonstrate that our world, or to our world, that God is victorious over the frail, over the fragile, and over the fallen. As He has been victorious over our sin, He can be victorious over all sin. It is necessary that we suffer to demonstrate to the world that God can work victories. What our world has faced of late is just another example that creation is groaning and waiting for liberation to come. One day it will come. And Christians, we signal to our world that we wait and we eagerly anticipate that day. And I think all this comes full circle because by living out our Christian faith, by reaching out and measuring up to our Christian standards, we are saying Christ alone is worthy and Christ alone can redeem our world. His way is worth living because it points to a pure and restored world to come. So we love when it'd be easier to hate because Jesus is the only way. We forgive when it'd be easier to begrudge because Jesus is the only way. We serve when it'd be more desirable to be served because Jesus is the only way. We give when it'd be more opportune to take because Jesus is the only way. We speak up for the weak when it'd be easier to be quiet because Jesus is the only way. And by signaling that Jesus is the only way, we also proclaim that He's the only way forever and ever to come. We confess to our world that there is hope for this fallen planet as demonstrated by our Christian ethics, and yet our ability is a preview of God's ability and intention to redeem the whole earth. And that's why Romans eight twenty eight says so confidently and so conclusively, We know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren, among us 
that would come after him. Of course, right, we're the joint heirs with Christ. We're children of God alongside Christ. What he did through Christ was a preview of what he wants to do through us, and that's a preview of what he wants to do and is going to do through the whole world. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. And if he's doing that in us, he can do it through anybody and in anything. And we live as we live to show the world there is hope coming. There is redemption coming. There is a better way. And there is a better world. And there's a Savior who is making that way possible. And we want him to demonstrate that way through us. We don't just live our lives out in a corner and say we don't want to be in the way. We, we want to mind our business. No, we get out in the business and we shine and we we say out loud and we say boldly, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. Nobody comes to God except through him. And we want to do what we can to live like him to point you all to him. Because Not because we're arrogant. No, no, no. The opposite. We are humble because we can't do it apart from him. We were lost and undone without God and his son. But because we've been given Jesus, we've been given victory. We can live victoriously and we can even suffer victoriously because we know joy comes in the morning. And if you want to know that if there's hope for this world, there absolutely is. The hope is named Jesus. You can have that same hope today. That is our message. That is our song. That is what motivates us every day in this fallen world. We choose God's way even when it'd be easier to do another way. We choose God's way even when it makes no sense because we believe God is making a way when it seems impossible. By following Jesus and letting His Spirit move through us, we declare to our world that God is at work. We are a vehicle and a vessel He is working through right now that defers to His sovereignty to work in ways we remain unable. Yet, we ask Him to call us and conform us to Christ to, to point to what He is up to. We deny our flesh and depend on His Spirit because there is no life apart from Him. There is no victory apart from Him. Listen in closing to Paul's praise and worship around God's ability to work all things out and how he gives us assurance that if we trust in and walk in Christ, we have nothing to be afraid of and we have everything to look forward to. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall be, bring charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The javelin has been hammered. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died. Furthermore, he is risen, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. That means security for the believer. That means confidence for the believer. And that means hope for the world. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for, our sake, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yes, we suffer, but we suffer for a reason. We suffer for a purpose, to point the world to Jesus because as He takes care of us, as His love remains on us, it is for them as well. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers of hell, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if we're in Him, then all those promises are to us. And we have nothing 
to be afraid. Though we suffer, though we struggle, we have victory in Jesus. If we're in Christ, we've been delivered from sin, declared righteous by God's Spirit, made righteous in God's Spirit. If we're in Christ, we are to demonstrate to the world that both restoration and reckoning are coming. In Christ, we're determined to keep our eyes on God and remain dependent on His love. Because just as nothing can save us but Jesus when we're in sin, nothing can separate us from Jesus when we're in Him. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have. Oh, what amazing love He has lavished on us that we could be called children of God. Encourage one another with these words, with this promise. Live out these promises and show the world there is victory in Jesus, in Christ alone. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for salvation. Lord, we know that apart from you, there is no hope, but in you, there is all the hope. Thank you for victory. Thank you for the pathway to victorious living. Thank you for the ability to suffer with that same victorious attitude so that we might point and proclaim to the world, Jesus has a way. Jesus is the way and his redemption is on the way. Father, I love you. Bless our people with this message. Bless the world that may listen in that we all may say and know with confidence all things are working out for the good for all those that love you and hear your call and answer your call. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to our service tonight. We pray that this word has encouraged you and equipped you and enables you and empowers you to follow God's promises, to live up to his standards, and to signal to our world that Jesus is all that we need and that his love is all we could ever ask for and more. God bless you. Hope you have a great night. We'll see you next time.